Okay. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's good to see you all. Thank you all for coming out here on a wonderful Thursday afternoon. I'm not even sure if we should call it spring yet. It's like, I literally, I dive in that outdoor menu this morning. It's been, there's been an outdoor menu in my neighborhood since the beginning of COVID. Incredible to their credit, right through the winter. We were, we were literally davening. I, I've been there at, in when it's nine degrees outside. I've literally been at davening when it's nine degrees outside. I put on my towels and fill in my house. And then I have like this whole like situation where I put my towels up and then I put a special ski cap on top of my towels. And then, you know, then I got this big coat and I'm wearing gloves and I drive over to the Minion and the Minion has these heaters blowing under the seats. I personally don't like using the heaters under the seats because then when you walk away from it, you remove your feet away from the heaters, they start getting very cold because they're used to being hot, whatever it is. But I've literally throughout the winter, I've davened in nine and 15 and 22 degree weather in 37 degree. this morning when i went out i davened there this morning when i left it was 37 when i left my house it was 37 degrees by the time davening was over it warmed up considerably it was 39 degrees by the time davening was over so yeah i'm not sure if i should say thank you for joining us on this nice spring afternoon maybe i should say thank you for joining us on this nice extended winter afternoon right i think mother nature is playing a joke on us They're like as long as Biden keeps extending the unemployment benefits, I'm going to keep extending winter. <laughs> We're never going to finish with winter. <laughs> okay, there we go. Now, I also want to thank the amazing folk over at the uh, Partners uh, Detroit and you should have up for arranging for this lunch learn every week and giving us the platform to connect and be together and learn from one another. It's awesome. It's amazing. I also want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app. It's a website. And it's got more Torah content than you could consume in your entire life if you literally consume content from here. I mean, you think Netflix has a lot of content. No way. Watch Netflix for three weeks. You'll end up at a screen that says you have reached the end of the Netflix. Please rewind and start over. But with Torah anytime, that will not happen. They will keep going because people keep uploading as you're watching and learning from Torah Anytime speakers. More and more rabbis are loading up more and more classes. My daughters recently, my daughters are very into Torah Anytime. Like Baruch Hashem, I, I have to say, like I just got yesterday one of the greatest nachas reports a parent could ever get. A mother told my wife, okay, that her daughter told her, right? So again, mother told my wife that her daughter told me that my daughter, I have a daughter who's, who's, who's turning 13 uh, next week, and she doesn't listen to Lush and Hara. I remember 12-year-olds, unfortunately, often speak a lot of smack about one another. You know, there was constant, this girl did this and this girl. And this girl came and told her mother, she's like, you know, Rachel Burnham, she won't, she just doesn't listen to Lush and Hara. She's very nice about it. She's friendly. She's like, oh my gosh, do you guys hear about what happened last week? She's like, if someone starts talking Lush and Hara in a group, she'll, she'll try to change the topic. She'll try to get around it. And if worse comes to worse, she's like, blah, I can't hear that. Come on, guys. Like, but she's not pushy. She's not mean about it. And I'm telling you, like, as a parent, to be able to, that, like, Baruch Hashem, that was like big, big, big nachas. But that incredible, my, that daughter of mine, as well as my other daughters, like, they're always like, Daddy, is it okay if I listen to a sheer right now on Torah anytime? And I'm like, are you asking me permission to learn, to go listen to a sheer on Torah anytime? Absolutely, you could go listen to a sheer on Torah anytime. So they listen. Um, a lot of my daughters are listening to this uh, this rabbi. His name is Rabbi, Yosh, rabbi Yoshua Zitron, and he's got like like two hundred and fifty shiurim already loaded up. Now some of them are short ones, like little five minute clips on like the lowdown on the Leviathan. What is the Leviathan in Torah thought or whatever it is? But like a lot of them are like these super. He'll give like a forty eight part class 
on faith. It's incredible. Anyway, so thank you to Torah Anytime. You guys are amazing. The brothers who run it, uh, Shimon and his brother, I think is David Koyakov, David Koyakov. They're amazing people. Um, so that's Torah Anytime. I also want to point out that if you happen to like listening to classes on the Apple podcast or any other podcast platform, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, whatever it is, Android, we are on all the above, thanks to the good efforts of my brother Israel Yaakov Burnham, Rabbi Ozzy Burnham from uh, Maryland, Detroit, who has a platform that any rabbi can get a, um, a podcast set up. If you are a rabbi and you're listening to this and you want to get a podcast set up, please reach out to me. Yes, my podcast is called Burnham on the Parsha. And I recommend that if you do listen to my podcast or my classes on Torah Anytime, feel free to listen to them in like 1.5 speed. All right, it makes me sound more intelligent, saves you time, and the world is a better place. Um, that's about it. I think we're going to get started. Okay, so there's this guy who's, um, he owns, he's a, he's a very wealthy guy. He's a manufacturer. He owns like a big plant. And, you know, when you're the owner of a big business, you're not there every day. You know, you've got, you've got people who do that for you. But one day he decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a surprise tour of the factory. I'm going to come check out, see what's going on. So he's walking through the factory. And everyone, of course, when the, when the big boss is there, everyone's like suddenly whirring around and all the gremlins are working full speed and all that. But he notices some guy who's just, he's just leaning against like a, like a, like a packing crate and he's just like kind of just sitting there doing nothing. And the factory owner wants to show like, this is what happens in my factory if you do nothing. So he calls over to the guy and makes sure to say it really loud in front of all of his employees. He's like, young man, how much do you make how much do you make? How much are you getting paid? And the guy says, I don't know, about $300 a week. He says, you know what? He pulls out his pocket. He pulls out a stack of hundos, right? He pulls out a stack of Benjamins, this big boss man. He's like, you know what? Here you go. Here. Well, how much you make a week? 300? Here. One, two, three. You're fired. Go home. I don't have people work here who do nothing. So the guy says, okay. And he picks up the uh, $300 and he walks out and the whole place is like kind of quiet. And the boss torn turns to the foreman who he's walking with. And he's like, what did that guy used to do? What was his job? And he says, boss, uh, that guy doesn't work for us. He's a delivery guy. He's delivering spare parts. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Shemitah, which is talked about in this week's Parsha, this week's parsha is Bahar and Bichukosai. And in this week's parsha, we talk about the mitzvah of Shemitah. And the mitzvah of Shemitah is like the Andrew Yang dream, right? Andrew Yang, if you don't know who he is, he ran for president on the uh, Democratic ticket. He did not get the nomination, obviously. Um, he now is running for mayor of New York. And I this morning, I read, as of this morning, he was the front runner for a long time. It looks like as of this morning, I think Eric Adams or Eric Stringer, somebody, somebody else is like stepping in front of him. But for a long time, he was a front runner for the mayor of New York. It's actually fascinating to watch. Um, there is a very, very large Orthodox Jewish population in New York City. And the amount of, of politicians who are now, you know, tweeting out and every, everything that happens in the Jewish world, they're like so deeply concerned about the Jewish community right now. It's amazing. Like, you know, you've got like, Andrew Yang and and, and 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 Eric Adams and all these people like talking about like the chasana of the Bubba Rebbe's grandchild like you know like 
okay, like there are a lot of Bavar Hasidim who live in New York, but like it is so nakedly politician-like for you to suddenly, Andrew Yang could not give two hoots about the Bavar Rebbe's grandchild getting married. Like really, really could not give two hoots. But it's, it's just, just amazing how they're all coming. There's, there's a lot of politicking going on right now. It's a big election year. Who's going to replace de Blasio as the mayor of New York? And let me tell you something. It's amazing to see suddenly how many people are so concerned with the Orthodox community. But like the Mishnah says in Pergavos, don't become too friendly with government. When they need you, they're all over you. They're concerned. They're coming to wish you mazel tov for your grandchild's wedding. And they're going to sit by your shiva calls. When they don't need you, shalom, as they say, shalom. Okay, in any case, so what makes Andrew Yang so famous is that Andrew Yang was a proponent of what we call UBI, right? UBI, right, stands for universal basic income, right? Universal basic income means this idea like, why should you work? <laughs> why should human beings have to work to make money? Why don't we just give everybody money? like basic money, like just enough to live off of, right? So universal basic income means we should give everybody, you know, $30,000, $40,000 a year so they can live. And then if they want to work, they could work. But if their passion is drawing, if their passion is artistic creativity, if they really love doing Mesoamerican uh, basket weaving, if they've got a penchant for, you know, uh, making glass art by breaking bottles and gluing them back together again, whatever it is that they find passionate and meaningful, they should be able to explore whatever is passionate and meaningful and the government should be paying for that, right? That's what we call it. UBI. Literally, if you think I'm kidding, I'm not. That is like Eric Yang's like big, big sort of experiment that he wants to do. Right now, of course, it, it often does work to get voters. When you tell people like, listen, whether you work or not, I'm sending you a check for $30,000 a year, that will get a lot of voters. Right. And of course, you know, I, it, it's absurd. The Talmud's opinion on this. Right. You can find in Tractate Kasubos, I believe, page 59 B. Right. So it was non Testament based, but I'm not sure. But it's for sure in Kasubos. And it's almost for sure in the in the 50s where the Gemara there talks about a woman who comes into a marriage and she's fabulously wealthy. And she comes she comes into the marriage and she brings with her a number of maids. OK. So you would think that she's got no responsibilities to do any work in the house, right? Because she's so wealthy and she's got, she brought five, six maids. Like normally, you know, a wife is expected to do something. Either she can go out to work, she can stay home and take care of the kids. She can keep the house clean. She can do all kinds of things. That would be normal. But if she brings a bunch of maids with her, she's like, look, I don't need to do that. I'm not doing the dishes. I brought two maids with me. They'll do the dishes, they'll, they'll do the laundry. So according to one opinion in the Gemara, she could just sit and do nothing. All right, you brought enough money, you brought enough, enough uh, human labor to the table, you brought enough maids into the marriage that you don't have to work. You could just, as the Gemara says, you could, you could sit on a chair and do nothing all day and like twiddle your thumbs. But the other opinion, who I believe is Rebbe Eliezer, he says, no, because boredom leads to two things. Boredom leads to insanity, like mental health problems, and boredom leads to licentiousness. And I think it's fascinating to see that Right now, our country is so beset with mental health problems, right? The levels of anxiety and depression in America are staggering, especially for the fact that we live in such a wealthy company, country. I mean, we live in such a wealthy country. Why do we have, and, and our, 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 our lifestyles are so rich, right? We, we have food and we have, we have clothing and we have houses. And, and by the way, 
Don't be like, well, Rabbi, that's your privilege. No, almost anybody in America right now between section eight and between food stamps, almost there, there are very few people in America who are starving, right? They talk about food insecurity and they, there's a, you know, they'll, they'll find four people who are living with food insecurity. There are food banks everywhere, right? If someone dies in America of starvation, if someone dies in Africa of starvation, that's because they didn't have food. If someone dies in America of starvation, it's not because there was not enough food, because there's plenty enough food. It's because of access, because of mental health issues, perhaps, whatever it is. But people today, anybody can get food. Anybody can get as much food as they need, really. Or at least most people. I don't want to say, I'm sure that you can find me four or seven people. You definitely can find the outliers. And, and, and often, you know, the news loves to do that, find the outliers and say, oh, look, there's food insecurity and but there's, there's a lot, maybe it means you have to lower your, your embarrassment level and go to a food bank and go ask for, for food. But there's, there's food banks everywhere, gleaners and forgotten harvest. So we live in an incredible, incredible country. And yet we're so, we're so ridden with anxiety and depression. How many people in America right now are taking meds for their mental health needs, which are real, but maybe part of the reason why they're real is because we're not doing enough. The Mishnah says, if you don't do, if you're not working, then you are going to, you know, you're going to have mental health issues and also licentiousness, right? Unfortunately, today we live in a, in, in, in a world that is filled with, with licentiousness and licentious ideas, licentious behaviors, promiscuity. It's being, it, it's, be, it's being promoted as a virtue, right? How many different, you see newspaper articles talking about the virtue of polyamory and, and, and you know, it's, you know, just like the breakdown of the American structure, the, the sanctity of a family that has married a husband and wife. And that's it. Like, that's it. Like, that's, that's what a family is supposed to be about. But this breakdown of it being destroyed by institution after institution within America. So thank you, by the way, Cherna. Cherna just wrote in, I'm so grateful for the Zoom classes this past year. They have definitely helped me keep my sanity. Me too, Cherna. Me too. I agree with you a thousand percent. These classes have helped me keep my sanity too. And I owe a big debt of gratitude to all of you for coming on and keeping me, but you're you're hundred percent right. And that's the beauty of Torah. The Torah is a staff of life for those who grasp onto it. Having the Torah, we say every morning, so we thank Hashem for choosing us and giving us this Torah. It really is a staff of life, living with the Torah, having Torah classes, having Limura Torah. It, it just, it changes our life. Having tefillah is part of our life, having prayers. It's all so crucial and so important. Which brings us to a very interesting mitzvah because the mitzvah is, that we're going to talk about right now, is the mitzvah of Shemitah, which basically tells you that the majority of people should be sitting around doing nothing. Let's remember that today, a very small percentage of people are farmers. Raise your hand if you're a farmer. Nobody? All righty. We got no farmers here. Surprise, surprise. Um, maybe it's because this week we have a smaller, a little bit lower count of people. We forgot to send out an email from partners last yesterday saying there'll be a class today. So we are down a few, a few souls over here in terms of numbers. Maybe, maybe all the farmers are out, or maybe it's just a harvest season. I, no, but we're not many farmers today. Two and a half thousand years ago, 3,000 years ago, 80% of society was involved in farming, okay? And if you didn't farm, you for, sure had a, you for sure had a garden on your property that would provide for most of your fruits and vegetables, right? So the majority of people back in those days were farmers. Today, a very, very small minority of people, which is, by the way, just another one of the incredible Niflo Sabore. I saw, I saw something yesterday. It was, it was just a video of a 
of a harvesting machine, harvesting a, a cornfield. It was, it was mesmerizing. It was incredible. I, I, I cannot, uh, it was just wild. Let me see if I can pull it up, whatever it is, but like just watching the beautiful synchrony, synchronicity, synchronousness, synchronicity, synchronicity, whatever. Anyway, the synchronous driving of this harvester and the harvester was driving and then next to it is a, um, was a, um, let me see if I can even pull it up. It was, it was a, next to this harvester was like a dump truck that was being filled. And then when the dump truck gets full, there's another dump truck there. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's I was watching, I was like, this is Niflo's Habore. This is what God created. God gave humanity the brilliance and the ability to, to, to do something like this. It's just so amazing. If I can find it, I'm gonna show it to you. It's just wild, just wild to watch. It's so beautiful. Anyway, okay, maybe I can't find it. If I can't find it, I'm gonna move on. But I really want you to see it. So I'm moving on very slowly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and then there will be people who will be listening to this class with their headphones and be like, okay, Rabbi, I can't see anything anyway. So can you just get to the point? Yeah, the point is I have ADHD, so I'm all over the place. That is the point. Okay, I can't find it. Oh, uh, sometimes you just got to give up. That's right. You just got to be a bigger man and let it go. I'm letting it go. Not so fast. Okay. All righty. I'm letting it go. I let it go. I let it go. <laughs> You're like, no, you didn't. You're still looking. You're still looking, Rabbi. You're still scrolling. Okay. All right. I put it down. I'm done. I, I, I couldn't find it. But you're going to have to just trust me. It was amazing to watch the human ingenuity of this farmer. Again, he's got this massive harvester and he's just going down this field. And then he's got like a chute and it's shooting right into a dump truck. But there's two dump trucks driving alongside him. And then as they're driving down the road, like literally one of the dump trucks gets full. So the the, 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 the little spigot that's shooting all this stuff that they're harvesting just like angles it out and shoots into the next truck and the first truck just drop you know just drops away and the second truck comes ne next and then they get to the end of the field they turn around it, it's amazing that you could have three people two truck drivers and a and a harvester driver harvest an entire massive cornfield in a few hours massive cornfield seas seas flowing shining seas of corn being harvested like this by three people. Back in the day, they would have taken an army of people. So the bottom line is, back in the day, a lot of people were involved. <laughs> this is just my way of saying back in the day, a lot of people were involved in farming. So we just have to be so thankful to Hashem that we are allowed to, uh, we, we have such innovation and, and drive. Let's see this week's Torah portion. Let's see how it starts. Here we go. <laughs> Parshas Bahar. Parshas Bahar. Okay. Vaidabar Hashem al Moshe Bahar Sinai Lamar. Hashem spoke to Moshe at Har Sinai saying, Dabra al Bnei Israel, speak to the Jewish people. Ba'amarta alem, and you will say to them, Kisavo al Aretashir Nino, Sain Lachem, when you will come to the land that I am going to give you, Vishavsa Aretz Shabbos la Hashem, and the land will uh, observe a Shabbos to Hashem. For six years, you can plant your field. And for six years, you can prune your vineyard. And you can gather in the crop. But in the seventh year, it will be a rest for the land. A rest for Hashem. You cannot plant your field. You cannot prune your vineyard. You have to leave everything behind. And it will be Shabbos for the land and so on and so forth. Right? So it's interesting for a people that 
so values doing stuff, right? As the Jewish people, we don't believe in universal basic income, right? We don't believe in Andrew Yang's philosophy of just give people money. I even believe, I mean, I've talked about this before. I really believe that America right now, we are hurting our country by just giving money to people in, with, without really, by, by not requiring more of people. People are able to get unemployment for so long. And, and you speak you know, to people right now, there's, it's very hard for employers. There are many employers that just can't find workers. It's, speak to anybody, like Montana just announced that they will no longer take money from the government for unemployment. They're like, there are thousands of people in Montana who are looking for workers, but no one wants to work because the, the government's giving them free money. So we're not taking, Montana announced this yesterday. The governor of Montana said, we're no longer taking money from the government. And my wife said, well, what are people gonna do? They're gonna move out of Montana. I'm like, no, they're gonna get a job. <laughs> they're gonna get a job. That's what they're gonna do. The vaccines have been available for everybody for weeks already. People aren't taking the vaccines, but instead what they're doing is they're staying home and not working because the government's paying people $600. I mean, here in Michigan, you can get $667. At one point it was $967 a week, right? So the government's paying everybody to not work, but that's not healthy. The Torah believes in working. The Torah says that if you give people money and you don't, even if they don't have to work, but if they're Adam Alma Yulad, man was made for working. So we believe so much in working. Why are we telling everybody take a year off? The answer is that it's not a year off. It's a year to be spent better focusing on the real things in life, which is what? Which is Torah which is what, which is godliness, which is what, which is classes. You know, all those people that say, oh, I wish I could study more, but I'm so busy at work. True, you are busy at work. You know what Hashem says? I know that you're working as a farmer and you are working and working. You're always in the fields. You're from morning until night. You're always in the fields. Okay, I get it. Guess what? I'm going to give you one year where you're not going to be in the fields. You're not going to be pruning. You're not going to be planting. You're not going to be harvesting. You're going to be leaving it go. And it's not about the land. It's about you. And that's why the Torah calls it a Shabbos. What do we do on Shabbos? On Shabbos, we focus much more on spirituality because we can't be at work. We can't be doing spreadsheets. We're not reading up on the market. We're not looking for, for flip opportunities in real estate. We're not building cars. We're not doing physical stuff. And what are we doing instead? We're staying, I mean, ugh, who doesn't love Shabbos? What is Shabbos all about? It's all about spirituality. It's all about spirituality. I tell people, I, I, I only started doing this recently. You know, I, I speak twice a year. I go out to this program called Heritage Retreats. A very close friend of mine, Rabbi Mordechai Kreitenberg, he has an organization called Heritage Retreats. Twice a year, I go out west with them, and we have classes. We 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 have uh, we have we go uh, this time. We're going to uh, Glacier National Park, so we'll wake up in the morning. We'll have an exp uh, two services: a regular service and an explanatory service. And then after that, we'll have um, you know we'll have like a, a class. We'll have breakfast and a class or two. Then we'll go on a hike. We'll come back. We'll have a class in the evening. So you know, I go there and I, I'm there for a week. I lecture five or six times, but I hang out with the guys and we talk and we schmooze. It's really really powerful. Now. I usually lead the davening on, on Kabbalah Shabbos and Friday night, and then we're dancing and singing. It's very, very beautiful. But recently, I, I decided, like, I started describing what Shabbos is. 
okay? So let me describe to you, can I please describe to you my Shabbos, okay? And I, 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 I invite you to make this your Shabbos too, because again, as a rabbi, what do I do? I just try to share what's meaningful to me. Shabbos is so meaningful to me. Shabbos is so meaningful to my family. Here's what Shabbos looks like. Before Shabbos, before we go to Shul, I stop up at a good friend of mine's house. And this way, this, this, is, a new, this is a new addition to my life, right? I stop up at my friend's house and we do something called Taya Melachayim Zachu. Taya Melachayim Zachu means you got to make sure that all the food is right for Shabbos. You got to taste it a little bit, you know, taste a little bit of the Shabbos delicacies to make sure everything's just right. And if you do that with the right intention, you, you, you get a special benefit. You get special benefit in, 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 in Olam Haba, so to speak. So before Shabbos, I stop up at my friend's house about a half hour before services, and we have a little bit of herring, we have a little lachaim, we have a little bit of uh, some meat there, like a salami or something, whatever it is. And we're just we're just getting ready. We're almost like letting the week just flow out of you. Just, just get ready. Then you go to shul. And I love my shul. It's amazing. The davening is beautiful. The rabbi speaks at Friday night so beautifully. I walk home from shul. Every week when I walk home from shul, one of my highlights of my week, I walk home from my shul with a very special yid named Rav Shmuel David Roth. Okay, Rav Shmuel David Roth uh, moved here about, he moved into our neighborhood about, I don't know, two, three years ago. And when we walk home from shul, he's expecting me to deliver every week. He wants to hear some Torah from me, some Divrei Torah, right? Like he's not, I, we're not walking home from shul schmoozing about the weather or the Yankees or the politics or the COVID or any of that. He, he couldn't care less. This guy's exotic. This guy's legit. All he cares about is Torah. Like, way, way more exotic than I. Like, you know, I can talk about anything pretty much. I could talk. He, 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 he's not interested. His joy, his geschmack is talking Torah. So I walk home from show with him and we talk Torah the whole way. He'll tell me some incredible verts over from his father-in-law, from very Yid from Montreal. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell over some Torahs to him and we get into it. I'm just yelling and screaming, geschmack. So the Torah says, and I come to my house and he drops it. He's like, leave, that was amazing. Make sure you write it in your book. And I come into my house. I'm already all smiles. I'm happy because just the geschmack of telling over the Torah on the way home. I come into the house. We sing Shalom Aleichem. We have a beautiful, beautiful Shabbos meal. At the Shabbos meal, we'll sometimes do a, a question, like a story question from Bahar Ebna. It's a special book where like they go through, in English it's called What If? You can buy it. It's a book that goes through all kinds of interesting, fascinating scenarios that come up in front of a Jewish court. Usually they're related somewhat to the Parsha. And then if you finish the meal, I mean, during the winter, I'll try to learn until I fall asleep over my Gemara. Or I'll just, if it's summertime, I usually just go to bed. I'll wake up early in the morning. It's quiet. The house, I come down. The house smells like chalant. Right, I'm telling you, someone's got to make a perfume that smells like chalant. It would only be bought by like the Orthodox Jewish community, but let me tell you, they would buy it in droves. I want, I want the chalant, uh, the hanging little tree on my car. You know what I'm saying? The, ch- the, ch- the chalant car freshener. Right. So I come downstairs, Shabbos morning, smells like. You're right. It only be the men who would buy it, probably. You're probably right. Or women buying it for their husbands, very important too. Right, honey, I got you an anniversary gift. No way. What did you get me? I got you chalant air fresheners for your car. Amazing, right? What man is not going to love his wife more when she buys him chalant air fresheners for his car, okay? So then I come downstairs. The whole house smells like chalant. It's quiet. All the kids are sleeping. I make myself a nice coffee. When I'm good with my diet during the week, I don't drink the, like, all my coffee is like sugar-free stuff. But like, on Shabbos, I get a finally a righteous coffee with the full flavor and the sugar and the fat and who knows whatever else I put in my coffee, all the 
soft and sweet stuff. Anyway, I have the coffee. I sit down on the couch and I'm learning. And then I get my kids come down and I make them Shabbos cereal breakfast because only on Shabbos we allow them to have like, uh, you know, all the sweet cereals, whatever they're eating, the churros and the cinnamon toast crunch and whatever it is. And, and we do the Shabbos cereals. And then usually I'll walk with one of my daughters to show my nine-year-old daughter. She's holding my hand. She's walking me to show. She's telling me about her week. And I'm just listening. I'm there. I'm focused. I don't got any calls coming in. It's not like I'm taking a walk with my daughter and suddenly like I call coming. I'm like, hold on, honey. I, I, you know, right. I, Yep. Yeah. Hello. No, none of that. None of that. None of that. I'm there with my daughter. And then I go to show. I love the davening and show. It's Kishmak. We sing a lot of my show. The rabbi speaks in the middle of davening. It's beautiful. Then we have a kiddish after davening, usually. And sometimes even after that, if I know my ready, my family's not going to be ready, I might go over to one of my houses, like a friend of mine's house, just stop in and say to our Torah. And then we walk back to the meal. And we have a beautiful Shabbos meal, singing, Zamiros, eating, good food, guests, beautiful, amazing. I'm exhausted. I go upstairs. I conk out on my bed, sleep for about two, three hours, wake up, learn with one of my kids, Mishnayis. Then I go learn with one of my Harusas. Then I go to Shul and I learn a little Gemara. Then I have Mincha. And then we have a Shal Shudas. Everyone's sitting down together. How often do you get to hang out with your friends in today's day and age? We all sit down for Shal Shudas together. And then there's a Pirkei Avoshir. And then there's Myriv. And Shabbos, it's already over. It's all, what? Where did it go? Time flies by when it's Shabbos. Because Shabbos is focused on what real life is all about. There's nothing in that real in Shabbos that I just described that is not where I want to be. Now the rest of the week, I can't be there. I have calls coming in all the time. I gotta do stuff. I got emails I gotta answer. Who there's a lot going on. But on Shabbos, I'm free to be able to focus on what's important. Tyra, my family, my kids, the community, davening, learning, eating great Shabbos meals. Hashem says, I want you to do that for a year. This is not about vacation. This is not for you to sit back on your back porch for a year and then wake up in the morning and have your espresso and look at your field lying fallow for a year. That's why it keeps saying throughout the things, Shabbos la Hashem, la Hashem, la Hashem. Shabbos 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 La Hashem, and 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 Rashi says L'shem Hashem. And, you know when 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 the, the pasuk says it should be for Hashem, Rashi seems to like add on something. It's like what? Like what are you adding? It says okay again. Let's read the pasuk. The pasuk says for for uh, when you will come to the land, um, speak to the children of Israel. And you will say to them when you come to the land that I'm giving you, and the land will have a rest, a Shabbos for Hashem. And Rashi says, Shabbos la Hashem. What does that mean? L'shem Hashem. For Hashem. Like, duh, that, that's what the verse said. What are you adding over here? Right? Now, you know, today, it's incredible. Today, we have no, we, we have a 24-hour news cycle, okay? You've got people on CNN and NBC and CBS, they've got to be reporting something 24 hours a day. And there's nothing to report. So they report about the most ridiculous things. Like they're just like, they're like repetitive. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like whether it be like some Senator will say something and then they're repeating over what the Senator is saying and they're repeating it over and they're analyzing it. And it's like, dude, like we got it. We heard it from the person. You know, like Rashi over here, Rashi did not have a 24 hour news cycle he had to fill. It wasn't like he was given a certain amount of words. You know, Rashi had to write an article each week and he's like, what should I write? Uh, it says it should be a Shabbos La Hashem, man. What should I write? Oh, all right, L'shem Hashem, for God. No, the Pesach says, Shabbos L'shem, a, a, a Shabbos for Hashem. 
Rashi is saying to you, L'shem Hashem, that this is a year that you should spend, L'shem Hashem. This is a time that you should spend focused on godliness. Continues Rashi, Keshem Shenemar B'Shabbos Bereshis. Just like it says when it refers to Shabbos Bereshis, which means the Shabbos, the seventh day of the week, that we know that the Shabbos, the seventh day of the week, is a day for you to have a relationship with God. Shabbos, go back. The word Shabbos means to go back. Go back to what? Go back to your neshama. Go back to who you are. Go back to your relationship with God. Be there. Be present. So too, Shemitah is not a year for the farmer to take off and spend the year sitting on his back porch watching the sunrise and the sunset. It's a year, L'shem Hashem, for the name of God. This year is not a Shemitah year. Next year is a Shemitah year. And by the way, it's amazing. We'll talk about the miracles shortly, but like it's amazing right now, the amount of farmers that are gearing up, that are getting ready to, to, to leave their lands for a year. Many of them move. Many of them move from their farm, farms that are in the Galil, and they move into cities where they can learn Torah for a year. There's an incredible organization. It's called Karen Hashvias. And you can look them up and you could try to hopefully get involved and see if you can help support these farmers who are going to spend the year learning Torah. I mean, literally, they, they, a lot of these farmers move. Okay, now. Hashem does say an incredible another thing. So again, first step is to recognize that all these seven things, the seventh year, the seventh day, they're not days to not do. They're not days of not doing. They're days of doing the right things. L'shem Hashem, in the name of God. Shabbos, the seventh day of the week is not like, oh, so I can't use my phone and I can't use my car and I can't be on my email and I can't be on my Instagram. So what am I going to do? I better sleep a lot so this way I can do stuff on Saturday night. No, use the day. The day is to be used. It's, it's such a gift to be used properly. Focus in family, community, friends, davening, learning, Torah. Now, by the way, I recognize that not everybody has a full family at this point in their lives, whether kids are out of the house or kids, someone didn't have children. There still should be a focus on community. And if you don't have, meaning there's, there's if, you, if you don't have a Shabbos community, make, make community around Shabbos. Make community around Shabbos. If you don't have it yet, find a way, get together with some friends and have a Shabbos meal. Not, not we're having dinner together. Make a Shabbos meal with friends. It's a totally different thing, right? When you start off your meal with a Kiddush and you start off your meal with challah and you make sure to read, you know, there's so many different printouts. You can print out Dvar Torahs, ideas to talk about, questions, things to ponder. Be prepared. I mean, if you just get together with a bunch of friends, you can do that on Tuesday night too. But I, I really urge, if you don't have right now community for Shabbos, create community around Shabbos. Make a Shabbos club with your friends. And every, you have a group of four or five people. Every month, one person does a Shabbos dinner. The last, you know, the last Friday night of the month, one person does a Shabbat dinner and invites everybody else over. And you have it together. Connect over Shabbos. Create that relationship around Shabbos. That is what Shabbos is for. L'shem Hashem, in the name of God, like Shabbos Barashas. 
Shabbos is not marked by what you don't do, but what, but, 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 by, but by what you do. Okay, now, continues the idea. The Torah tells you that, it's very interesting, by the way, um, before I get there, I just want to point out one more thing. There is Shabbos in time, right? That's the seventh day of the week. There's Shabbos in place geographically in Israel. The whole entire land is fallow. And then there's the Jewish people, and that connects them. And you have person, place, and time. Those, that, that's three connection of all the elements coming together. And next week, we'll have, next year, we'll have all of them, where you can have the people of Israel during the time that the land itself, the place, the geographic location is sanctified by us not working it and desisting and holding back to be focused on our Torah and, 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 and on Shabbos. So that is uh, an important, important component of that. Now, interestingly, also, there are different things that are called testimonies. that are called edus. Right on Friday night, we stand up for the beginning of Kiddush. Different people have different customs about whether or not they sit during Kiddush Friday night or not. But everybody, I mean, some people say the whole Kiddush on Friday night standing, and some people I know it's the minority, my family included, though. We stand up for Vayachulu and then we sit down for the rest of Kiddush. Okay, so we're standing for them, and then we go, then we stop. Everyone sits down. And sometimes when we have a lot of guests, there's a lot of scraping and chairs being pulled back, a lot of noise, a lot of chaos. And then everyone sits down, and then we say, right? And we do the rest of Kiddush. Why do we do that? Why do we stand for half and sit for half? So in general, brachas are ideally supposed to be made sitting down, because that gives you the ability to focus more on your bracha. That being said, the beginning of Kiddush on Friday night is testimony. On the fifth, sixth day, all the work of the heavens and the earth was completed. And Hashem completed all the work that I did. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because on it, Hashem rested from all the work that He did. When we say that, we're actually giving testimony. In Shul, we read Vayachulu, and if someone's in the middle of Shemun Asrei and they didn't hear Vayachulu, they didn't read it together with the congregation, they're supposed, you'll see often on Friday night after show is over, like men just pairing off into little groups of two and saying Vayachulu. They'll be like, oh, do you say Vayachulu? Yeah, here, come here, come here. We'll say it together. And you see two people saying Vayachulu together. Why two people? Two people. You need two people for testimony. By the Jewish law, lo yakum eid echad, you cannot have one testimony, one person witnessing for a testimony. You need according to the word of two witnesses, a matter will be upheld. So when we are talking about Shabbos, we are giving testimony to Shabbos. So we're literally standing, when we stand up by Kiddush and we say, God completed his work on this after six days and he rested and sanctified the seventh day, we are giving testimony with Kiddush to the reality of God creating the world in six days or six eras and resting on the seventh. And that's why we stand up for it. We, my family sits for the rest of Kiddush. We're like, normally you're supposed to sit for brachos. So why shouldn't we be sitting? But we have to stand up for testimony because witnesses in court have to stand up to give testimony. I know, not in American court, but in a Jewish court. In a Jewish court, when witnesses give testimony, they're supposed to be standing up. So we stand up for the beginning of Kiddush. Okay, now, Shabbos, the Jewish people are called a testimony. Atem Eidai Nu'um Hashem. We give testimony to God's existence. 
okay? When the world sees us and sees what we've been through and what we've managed to accomplish, we are the testimony that God is the creator of the world. Pascal, who was the famous court philosopher in the court of Louis XIV, okay? One time, Louis XIV was about to start a meal, and he's like, wait a second, how do I know there's a God? I never thought about that. Yo, Pascal, come here, come here, no, no, come here, come here. Pascal's like, yes, your honor. He's like, look, I'm about to start lunch, and I, I don't really want to be trifled with this, with this for too long, so do me a favor. Can you please, um, yeah, just, just prove to me that God exists, like, in one sentence. I, I really want to start dinner. I can smell it already. It smells like chalant. Smells like Rabbi Burnham's air freshener from his car, right? Smells like they got chalent in the kitchen. I can't be held back, but just prove to me in one sentence that God exists. And what does Pascal say? The Jews, your majesty, the Jews. <laughs> we are a testimony to God in this world. And again, indeed, that, that's what the prophet tells us. Atem Hashem. You are my witnesses says God. We are witness to God's reality, the fact that we are his chosen people and the nations of the world know that and they try to obliterate us because of that. And yet we're still here and still thriving despite all the attempts for otherwise. We are the testimony of God's reality in the world. Shabbos is when we give testimony to God's reality in the world and Shemitah is also considered a testimony to God in the world. How? Because that's when we see that God really controls everything. Because at the end of the day, how do we eat if we're not cooking, if we're not planting? At the end of the parsha, it does say, talks about the Shemitah, and then it says the Yovel, which is the Jubilee. The word Jubilee comes from Jobel, Yovel, Yovel, right? So Jubilee is the 50th year, and that's when we have uh, a double Shemitah, basically. It goes from the 49th year of Shemitah and the 50th year of Shemitah too. And then at the end, end, end of the parsha, the Torah says, by the way, if you ask, what are we going to eat? Then I will command my blessing and you will see incredible miracles, which I just heard fascinatingly. The Naim Elimelech, or Elimelech of Lezhensk points out in the name of his brother, when God says that, that's a mistake. He doesn't want you to be doing that. You shouldn't be saying, what are we going to eat? If you do ask what we're going to eat, why shouldn't you be saying that? You got to eat. It should be obvious to you that you're, do my kids ever say to me, daddy, um, and again, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, they don't. My kids never said to me like, daddy, how, how are we going to eat food next year? Like, how are we going to have food next year? Baruch Hashem, their entire life, they've only been taken care of by me and my wife, who of course always point out that we get it from their bonus loan, you know, always like my, my kids thank me. They say, daddy, thank you for working so hard. You know, right up there, I point right up there because that's where it all comes from. And, um, but Baruch Hashem, their entire life, they've had food, right? None of my kids have ever gone hungry. Baruch Hashem, again, there's been times in history it's not been like that. But because of that, they don't ask me, when are we going to eat? So the fact that you have to even ask Hashem, like, what are we going to eat if we keep your mitzvahs is actually considered to be, it's at the end of the Parsha. It's not in the beginning of the Parsha. It's like, by the way, little caveat, if you're going to happen to ask, like you ideally shouldn't ask. God says you do and you just do it because you know that he would never ask you to do something that's not going to, that's going to hurt you, right? So you shouldn't have to be asking God, well, what are we going to eat? Don't ask that question. But if you do, by the way, if you do ask that question, then I'll make a special blessing for you. Otherwise, without my special blessing, the world operates according to how God wants it to operate. Meaning it's, it's a fascinating idea. The more I have faith in God, 
the more I put my faith in God that God will take care of me, the more God does take care of me. The more I doubt God, the more God says, okay, you, you, God, you think I can't take care of you? Fine, I won't take care of you. You take care of yourself, right? It's called Mida Kenegad Mida. You have faith in me, Hashem says, you believe in me, I'll take care of you. If you're not so sure, you're like, I think I got to work on Shabbos because that's the main day. That's when all the customers come in. I can't make money if I don't work on Shabbos. Hashem says, I told you, you could. You want to be on your own? You want to control your own finances? Go for it. But the reality is Hashem says, I'll take care of you. You shouldn't even be asking, what are we going to eat? The same way my kids don't ask me, daddy, what are we going to eat? You know, so... We shouldn't be asking them. Hashem says, if you do ask me, I'll make a special bracha for you because you've just taken yourself, you took in, you've taken yourself out of the category of the simple maimon. You've taken yourself out of the category of those who have faith. And you've now asking the questions, I'll still take care of you. God says, I love you so much. You're my child. I'll still take care of you and I'll make a special blessing for you. No problem. But by the way, that, that's like that's like what we call in Hebrew a bidyevet. That's a second best scenario. The best scenario would have been like, yeah, Hashem made a mitzvah. It's going to be awesome. We're just going to keep this mitzvah. We're not worried. The way the Jewish people walked out of the desert. What does Hashem say? Hashem says, I remember the kindness of your youth, O Israel, that when I took you out of Egypt, you just, boom, you left out into the desert with nothing but a sack of matzah on your backs. You didn't say, wait, 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 God, hold on, hold on a second. You want me to go like there into, into the desert? What are we going to eat? You didn't say that. You just walked out. Ah, oh, Hashem said, I love that. I remember that kindness that you did for me. And I will forever remember that kindness that you did for me. If we believe in Hashem for the Shemitah, we don't need to ask the questions. But by the way, Hashem says, by the way, if you do ask the questions, I will make a special blessing for you. Everybody else who didn't ask the question, they get the natural, amazing way I set up the world. That the world works in consonance with the Torah. God, as the Zohar tells us, looked into the Torah and created the world. The world runs on Torah. If you had followed the Torah and you didn't have any questions, you'd be fine. You want to take yourself out of that category? You want to ask questions? I'll also take care of you. Thank you for playing. Now, okay, let me give you some stories though. Just, I want to read to you. I'm going to read to you a, a, a direct quote of a person who lived in the first Orthodox Moshav in Israel which was called Moshav Komimiyut. Okay, now, hold on a second. I'm going to read to you a first-person account. My name is Dove Weiss, and I was one of a group of about 30 young men that started the Moshav, the agricultural settlement of Komimiyut in the south of Israel. It was in 1950 after we had completed our army service. I was still a bachelor then. Among the founders was also the well-known Torah scholar and rabbinical authority, Rabbi Binyamin Mendelssohn of blessed memory. He had previously immigrated to Israel from Poland and had served as the rabbi of Kfar Atta. At first, we lived in tents in the middle of barren wilderness. The nearest settlements to ours were several kibbutzim associated with the left-wing Shomer Hatzair movement, Gat, Gilon, and Negba. Now, the Shomer Atzair were unfortunately people who were violently anti-religion. They believed that there was the old Jew, the European Jew, the Jew who went like quietly to the slaughter in, in, in the Holocaust, and there was the new Jew, not bound and fettered 
by religion, not bound by ancient mystical beliefs, but the new Jew, the one who's going to be the chalutzim, the pioneers. We're going to go. We're going to make the land of Israel. We're going to wear our koba tembo, and we're going to drain the swamps, and we're, and, and we're going to do all that. But we don't have any religion. Unfortunately, many shomerats at your kibbutzes would have parties on Yom Kippur with music and dancing. Several of our members supported themselves by working at Kibbutz Gat, the closest to us, doing different types of manual labors. Others worked in our own fields, planting wheat, barley, rye, and other grains and legumes. I myself drove a tractor. Our produce, which grew throughout the 15,000 or so dunams, about 4,000 acre, which was allotted to us by the government, we sold to bakeries and factories. At that time, there were not yet water pipes reaching our moshav. We had to content ourselves with what could be grown in dry, rugged fields. Every few days, we would make a trip to Kibbutz Negba, about 20 kilometers distant, to fill large containers with drinking water. The second year we were there, 5711 on the Jewish calendar, which is 1950 to 1951, was the Shemitah year, which comes every seventh year, in which the Torah commands to desist from all agricultural work. We were among the very few settlements in Israel at the time to observe the laws of the sabbatical year and refrain from working the land. Instead, we concentrated on building and succeeded, succeeded that year in completing much of the permanent housing. The Moshav gradually developed and expanded more and more families and moved in, as well as a number of young singles. By the end of the year, we numbered around 80 people. As the sabbatical year drew to its completion, we prepared to renew our farming activities. For this, we required seed to grow crops. But for this purpose, we could only use wheat from the sixth year the year that preceded the Shemitah. For the produce of the seventh year is forbidden for this type of use. You're not allowed to use, you're allowed to eat Shemitah food, but you're not allowed to buy Shemitah products. You're not allowed to use it for agriculture or for like business. The only thing you're allowed to do is eat Shemitah products. So they would not use any Shemitah seed that was grown by the secular kibbutzim nearby. They only were looking for seed from the sixth year. We went around to all the agricultural sediments in the area near and far, seeking good quality seed from the previous year's harvest, but no one could fulfill our request. All we were able to find was some old wormy seed that for, for reasons that never were made clear to us was laying around in a storage shed in Kibbutz Gat. No farmer in his right mind anywhere in the world would consider using such poor quality seed to plant with, not if he expected any crops to grow from it. The kibbutzniks at Gat all burst out into loud derisive laughter when we revealed that we were actually in interested in this infested grain that had been rotting away for a few years in some dark, murky corner. <laughs> if you want it, you can take it all. Take it all for free with our compliments, they offered in amusement. We consulted with Rabbi Mendelssohn. His response was, take it. The one who tells wheat to sprout, God who tells wheat to sprout from good seed can also order it to grow from inferior, wormy, leftover seed as well. In any case, we didn't have any alternative. So we loaded all the old infested seed that the kibbutz had offered us free of charge onto a tractor and returned to Komi Miyut. The laws of Shemitah forbade us to plow and turn over the soil until after Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the eighth year. So we didn't actually sow the seed until sometime in November. This was two or three months after all the other farmers had already completed their farming. That year, the rains were late in coming. The farmers from all the kibbutzim and moshavim gazed upward longingly for the first rain. They began to feel desperate, but the heavens were unresponsive, remaining breathlessly still and blue. 
Finally, it rained. When? The day after we completed planting our thousand dunam of wheat fields with those wormy seeds, the sky opened up and the rains exploded down to saturate the parched earth. The following days, we were nervous in anticipation, but we turned our attention to strengthening our faith and trust in God. Anyway, it did not take a long time for the hand of the Lord to be relieved, revealed clearly to all. Those wheat fields that were planted during the seventh year, months before the first rains, sprouted only small, weak crops. At the same time, our fields sowed with the old infested seed and long after the appropriate time were covered with an unusually large and healthy yield of wheat in comparison to any standard. The story of the miracle at Komamiyut spread quickly. Farmers from all the agricultural sediments in the region came to see with their own eyes what they could not believe when they heard the rumors. When the farmers from Kibbutz Gat arrived, they pulled a surprise on us. After absorbing the sight of the bountiful quantity of wheat flourishing in our fields, they announced that they wanted payment for the tractor load of old rotten wheat seed they had scornfully given us for free only a short time before. Even more startling, they said they would file a claim against us in Bayesden, a Jewish rabbinical court, with Rabbi Mendelssohn himself no less, because they knew that in a regular court of law, they would get nothing for it. They had given it away. They must have figured that in a secular court, such a claim wouldn't even have the slightest possible chance of gaining them a, sim a single penny. Rabbi Mendelssohn accepted their case seriously and in the end judged that we should pay them. He explained that the reason they gave it for free was because they thought it was worthless for planting, while in truth, it was really excellent for that purpose. We were astonished to hear his ruling, but nevertheless, we complied. The whole story became an extraordinary Kiddush Hashem in the eyes of the Jews across the country. Everybody agreed it was a clear fulfillment of God's promise in the Torah. Sheshanim Tizra Sadcha, Sheshanim Tizmar Karmacha, for six years you will plant your field, and for six years you will prune your vineyard and gather in its fruit. But in the seventh year shall be a Shabbos for the land. A Shabbos, La Hashem, Lashem Hashem, not to sit back and do nothing, but to spend the time focused on godliness. And if you will say, what will we eat in the sixth year? God says, I will command my blessing. One more quick story before we end. There was a girl who used to work for partners. Her name was Sarah Arm. And she told me what she witnessed with her own eyes. Again, her name is Sarah Arm. I don't know what her, I don't know where she might have gotten married by now, in which case I don't know what her name is. But she, I was talking about that, I was giving a class about Shemitah, and she was the secretary, and she heard the class. And she told me the following. So she came over to me after the class. She said, Thank you, Rabbi, for the class. And she said that there were that when she was in seminary in Israel, there was a grasshopper plague. There was a plague of grasshoppers. And after the plague of grasshoppers was over, their seminary loaded up all the girls into onto bus, onto a bus. They rented a bus and they drove down to the south to where this particular area was that was hit by this plague of grasshoppers. And they walked into a farmer, they came to a farmer and the farmer said, I'm not going to tell you what the boundaries of my land is. You're going to tell me what the boundaries of my land is. And that was because the grasshoppers had picked clean all the surrounding farms and his farm, who he had kept the Shemitah, nothing was touched. 
the grass, and this is, I heard it from Sarah Arm, who used to work for partners, who went with her seminary and saw this with her own eyes. The Jewish people are a testimony to God's reality in the world. When a king of, of France wants to know, how do you know that God, the, the God exists? Pascal, the philosopher, says, just look at the Jews. Look at their story. Look at how they've persevered and thrived despite everybody trying to rip us down. That's a proof that God exists because his children, his special chosen people, are still around and thriving. And Shabbos is a testimony to God. When we sit on Shabbos, which again is not a time to sit back and do nothing, it's a time to do L'Shem Hashem for the honor of God, to fill our Shabbos with meaning and spirituality and singing Zmiros and having Shabbos meals and learning extra Torah and davening extra tefillos and saying extra tehillim. Shabbos is our testimony that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, which is why we stand for Vayachulu on Friday night when we say Kiddush. And Shemitah is the testimony that God controls the world. God controls the earth. God controls the grasshoppers. God controls the fire. My mother remembers when we went to Israel, when we first moved to Israel in 1990, I, I don't remember exactly what year was Shemitah. It was 91, whatever it was. And there was a forest fire that devastated thousands of acres. And you could literally see aerial photographs. They were printed in the papers the next day of the fire just going around a Moshav that kept Shemitah. And you could see the aerial photographs taken by helicopters. You remember this? My mother just came on. I can't unmute you. I'm sorry, Ema, but my mother remembers that. She'll tell us more about that later. But the point is, this is what Shemitah is. This is what we're all about. We do not believe in just sitting back and doing nothing and getting paid. We're not about universal basic income. But we are about saying, Hashem says, I give you time. I give you that opportunity to rejuvenate. It's L'shem Hashem for the name of Hashem. It's the earth doesn't need that. Hashem can make the earth grow 800 years in a row. It's about Hashem giving us the opportunity to grow. Six years, you grow your fields. One year, you grow yourself. Six days a week. For six days of the week, you do your labors. And for one day a week of Shabbos, you labor on yourself and build yourself into who you want to be. That's what we're all about. Thank you all so much for coming. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful, amazing Shabbos. And I will...